1: We all know how the Good Friday Agreement affected politics in Northern Ireland, but what impact did it have on sport? International football's eligibility debate. Now, the problem is, and the rules that they're stating at the minute, that if you're born in Northern Ireland, you can play for either the Republic of Ireland or Northern Ireland. But on the other hand, Northern Ireland cannot um, poach players from Southern Ireland.
2: The removal of
1: GAA's Rule 21.
2: It's a great opportunity uh, for fostering police, inter-police relationships and we've, we've had a number of these tournaments now and it, and it just builds every time and you've and the an opportunity, you know, the it's, it's sport's central to it, but opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, policing innovations and things like that as well and that's very important to us.
1: New facilities at Ravenhill and Windsor Park. Clayton Thomas has blown his whistle and Oscar have won the European Cup the arrival of the belfast giants conway with poise and purpose
3: scores! Scores! done and dusted in the land of the giants no one is equal belfast now the league champions along with their challenge county
1: northerland almost had its own premier league football team
3: back in 1988 after the good friday agreement had been signed Mo um, had this grand vision that she would like to have Premier League football brought to Northern Ireland. Back then, Wimbledon were considering relocating from London, so then Belfast came on the radar.
1: I'm your host, Keith Bailey, and in today's Tell we look at how sport in Northern Ireland has changed over these last 25 years. On today's Bell Tell, we will look at the impact that the Good Friday Agreement has had on sport, including GAA, rugby and various other sports. But we're going to kick things off by talking about football, uh, which is the sport that I would say has, had, has been impacted the most by the Good Friday Agreement. I'm joined by our chief sports writer, Stephen Beckham. How are you, Stephen?
3: Hi, Kate. How are you keeping?
1: Very good. Well, let's, let's kick things off with talk... About a fantastic, a phenomenal, a massive story from 1998, um, and that was the possibility of Wimbledon Football Club moving to Belfast and becoming a Premier League team. Take us back to that time. What are your memories of that story? Because you know, some people might not believe it.
3: Yeah, it's an extraordinary story. But um, back in 1998, after the Good Friday Agreement had been signed, Mo um had this grand vision that she would like to have Premier League football brought to Northern Ireland. Mo was the Northern Ireland Secretary of State back in 1998, 25 years ago, and was a very, very influential figure at the time. Back then, Wimbledon were considering relocating from London and were looking at Dublin as a possibility, but they weren't getting much joy from the FAA So then Belfast came on the radar, and bear in mind, on the back of the Good Friday Agreement, this was going to be a bright, new, safe Belfast, safe Northern Ireland. So the timing for the people involved in it was perfect. In a draft government letter, which was leaked to the Belfast Telegraph 25 years ago, Mo Molam wrote to the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and the Sports Minister, Tony Banks, And it's really interesting to look back on that letter because it shows how serious Mo was. I'm going to read it out to you some of what um, her correspondent said. I am writing to you concerning a proposal which is being developed to build a new international standard sports stadium in Belfast and to attract a Premier League football club as the anchor tenant. The success of this project is far from certain. There remain significant hurdles to be overcome but a successful outcome would offer significant benefits to Northern Ireland in terms of capital investment by the private sector, positive impact on its international image and opportunity for substantial cross-community participation. As such, I would view the project as the type of development that we need to underpin the peace process. So you can see by that letter Mo was very, very serious. Um, Also in that letter it said that they would need support from the Irish FA and the Football Association in England and that is where the problem started because the FA were dead against this plan. The president of um, the Irish FA at the time was Jim Boyce and the general secretary was David Bowen. They went to meet some of the people involved in the project um, but and no uncertain terms were clear that they were against bringing Premier League football and a Wimbledon-type team to Northern Ireland. Bowen actually slammed the government attitude um, regarding the project, and um, it became quite fiery uh, uh, for a period of time. And um, Jim Boyce, actually, in a piece in the Belfast Telegraph this week, he labelled it a political stunt. Now, back in London, the Wimbledon fans were totally opposed to relocation of any kind, particularly in another country, and you can totally understand that. And with the Irish FA saying that they were against it because they were all for promoting football in Northern Ireland and promoting the Irish League, the project never happened. Um, I'm sure some people were disappointed, but um, uh, the Irish FA felt that they did the right thing at the time. And they, speaking to Jim Boyce, he has no regrets over how the Irish FA... And his words stood up for Northern Ireland football 25 years ago.
1: Well, of course, it, it never came to fruition. So let's talk about uh, something that actually did happen following the Good Friday Agreement. In recent years, we've seen several players from Northern Ireland declare for the Republic of Ireland national team, such as James McLean, Darren Gibson, and most recently Cliftonville teenager, Sean Moore. Was this made possible by the Good Friday Agreement? Can you give us a bit of the a, a history on, on this delicate topic?
3: Yeah, Keith, it's worth pointing out, actually, that um, the issue of eligibility was around long before the Good Friday Agreement. Jack Charlton famously used it to his advantage for the Republic of Ireland. He brought in a host of brilliant players through the parent and grandparent rule. Um, It was controversial and sometimes derided. But, to be fair, Jack used the rules at that point for the good of his team, and um, had great success with it. I know there was the age old joke if you 've had a pint of Guinness, you can play for Ireland, but um, uh, it wasn't as bad as that you know um and we should also say that Northern Ireland used the rules to their advantage as well. Kingsley Black being an excellent example, he had played for England schoolboys and was born in England, but Billy Bingham persuaded him to play for the country of his dad's birth. And um, uh, I remember the cop at Windsor Park singing to Kingsley Black, you're not English anymore. Um, So, yeah, it it cuts both ways. What the Good Friday Agreement did was add an extra and important strand in eligibility laws concerning Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And um, it's... (laughs) It's interesting when we look back at it because the Good Friday Agreement recognised the birthright of people from Northern Ireland to identify themselves and be accepted as British, Irish or both. Now, back in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement and um, FIFA's eligibility rules weren't exactly in sync and so began this battle between the IFA and the FAI that is still going on to this day. Effectively, what the Good Friday Agreement was saying was that anyone born in Northern Ireland could play for the Republic of Ireland and the highest profile name in the early days of all this happening was Darren Gibson, who was at Manchester United. He'd played for Northern Ireland at underage level and then he switched to the Republic and made his full debut in 2007. The IFA said, Keith, at that time, that FIFA rules made it clear that Gibson was born in Londonderry or Derry, call it whatever you like, and should not be allowed to play for the Republic because neither the player nor his parents or grandparents were born south of the border. In contrast, the FAI insisted that Gibson was qualified to play for the Republic under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, which stated that anybody born in Northern Ireland was entitled to Irish citizenship. Gibson, Gibson with the shot.
2: Oh, that's special!
1: That is absolutely terrific. And that,
2: by the way, will go down in the record books as Darren Gibson's first international goal. And Darren Gibson has put Ireland in front right on the app.
3: So this was going on and um, it came to a head, um, typically in court, as these things tend to do. But before that, in 2009, at an International Football Association board meeting, an IFAB meeting, ironically, in Newcastle County Down, um, Sepp Blatter did something that blindsided the Irish FA um, and is still looked upon in some circles um, really, really badly by the people involved with the IFA at that time. Um, he held a press conference and um, the IFA had, had long gone from um, Newcastle at this point. Raymond Kennedy, actually, who was the IFA president at the time, had taken Michelle Platini off to Mournview Park to watch a game of football. And while he was doing that bladder, um talked to the media, And um, he famously said that the FAI could take their pick of players born, bred, and developed in Northern Ireland as long as they had an Irish passport. And because Blatter was so powerful in football at that time, once he had spoken and said those words, the IFA were fighting a losing battle. Raymond Kennedy actually would say later that Blatter was not a friend to Northern Ireland football. In 2010, the IFA took the case against the uh, FAA to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And they lost that case. And um, Daniel Kearns, who's now playing at Larne, was um, uh, one of the, the factors in that case. And that decision by the Court of Arbitration for Sport gave the FAA an open ticket to pursue any player from the island. They have done that for years the most recent case being the Cliftonville teenager, Sean Moore, And over the course of that time, a number of players from Northern Ireland have gone to the Republic.
1: Absolutely. Uh, obviously, uh, still a source of frustration to the Irish FA till this day. They did get something out of out of what followed from the Good Friday Agreement and the executive, and, and that is the redevelopment of Windsor Park, which is a much better, more modern stadium than, than it was before. But... Um, Well, it's not all gone the way of Irish league clubs when it comes to facilities. They feel like they've been overlooked by the executive.
3: Keith, I think politics and politicians have consistently let Irish league football down. You know, you can think back to after the Taylor report, following the Hillsborough disaster, and Northern Ireland clubs received no help regarding their stadiums then, and bring it up to the present day, and there's been no payouts in relation to sub-regional funding. This money has been promised for years to football in Northern Ireland and still hasn't been delivered. Frankly, to me, it's an absolute disgrace how football and Irish League football has been treated by politics and politicians in Northern Ireland. I hope and pray that one day they sort all this out, but I'm not going to hold my breath because um, the way our football has been treated by so-called people in power, has been absolutely appalling.
1: Well, now I'm joined by GA reporter Declan Book to discuss the Good Friday Agreement's impact upon Gaelic games. Declan, it's a very broad question, but overall, how would you say that GA has changed over the last 20, 25 years, and what sort of impact has the Good Friday Agreement had?
0: I'd say now there's far more open um, politically. It has reached out in many ways. Uh, there's a lot of integration. But there's a huge amount of modernization in terms of how they run things. In terms of the multi-million-pound turnover that the GA now produces, and um, I would certainly say that in modern media, it, is, it, is, it, is, it has come to the middle ground in terms of BBC and like really were only dipping their toes in the late 80s uh, and early 90s into screening actual games. And I remember there was a game in Celtic Park between Derry and Throne that the cameras only really started broadcasting after the uh, the soldiers' song was played. You know, there was a lot of sensitive stuff going on back then that people are not really so much fussed or worried about now. But uh, now the BBC cover as much as possible. One of the most popular podcasts is the J Social and broadcasters are now fighting over the ability to actually broadcast the games.
1: One of the most controversial aspects and, and things that followed on after the Good Friday Agreement was obviously Rule 21, which prevented um, members of security forces in, in Northern Ireland from participating in GA, and, and that was removed. Um, do you think that was a, a major step forward for the association?
0: Yes, absolutely. I, it was a nettle that really had to be grasped, but. Being frank, could it have been? Could it have happened without the Good Friday Agreement? Not at all. I don't think it would have because as long as you maybe had uh, British Army personnel in places like Cross Maclean, confiscating half their land, saying we're we're taking this now and we're going to build a barracks, landing helicopters in the middle of games, mm. uh, just general. Irritation that it was causing to people travelling to and from games or players that were held up at checkpoints and so on. It was probably never going to happen under those circumstances. With the Good Friday Agreement, all that changed. PSNI became uh, endorsed by major political parties and it, there was no need for it then. There was absolutely no need for it. And, and you know, I spoke to Damien Tucker, who was the first chairman of PSNI GA Club. Hmm. And you know he he was able to, at the age of thirty seven to play uh, Gaelic football once more, and it was a real joy. Like he talked about how much he enjoyed being able to do that once more, brought him back to his childhood and so on. Uh, obviously, the absolutely horrible horrible uh, act that was carried out in Patter Hafran mm-hmm. it has probably put an awful lot of policemen off, you know, joining in than playing Gaelic games like in a local way. There is some anecdotal evidence. Now, It's not I'm not saying it's common, sure. but I have heard of various places in Ulster where uh, policemen have been able to play for a local club and they keep sort of discreet about, you know, what their occupation is and whatever else. But there's still a little bit of uh, difficulty, it would seem, in people just playing and being policemen and playing for their local club. It's just not really uh, common yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, recently, uh, Charlotte Burns, obviously the incoming president uh, for the GEA, said that he would like to see more unions becoming involved in in Gaelic games. Is that realistic? Is that something that, that's achievable?
0: Well, I'll tell you it this way: East Belfast Club is a shining example of that, right? And they were formed after a tweet in uh, 2020, and within two months they were play- in registered playing in the Down Leagues, and they had 130 men. Who are signed up to play senior football at that stage? Like East Belfast GA have the biggest playing membership of any any GA club in Ulster Northern Ireland. And in the first year, that they, they thought, well, we're going to do some feasibility studies, in, just in case they were applying for grants and so on. So they sent out among all their membership anonymous uh, feedback forms. Right, twenty six percent of the respondents to that anonymous survey said they came from a unionist background.
1: That's fascinating. I, I mean, I, I think I probably—I think most people think that the East Belfast success is down to changing demographics in, in East Belfast and a um, more of a nationalist population there. But it's obviously taken in—you know—some people from the unionist community are, are involved in that as well, which is which is a great thing. Now I'm joined by the Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley. Jonathan, I suppose when we talk about the Good Friday Agreement and the impact it had on sport. Rugby is perhaps a sport that that hasn't been massively directly impacted by the Good Friday Agreement. Do do you see any ways in which it's made a change to the sport?
2: Yeah, you don't have that sort of seismic shift that you would have in, say, Northern Ireland football through the difference that it made to eligibility or even, I suppose, the argument of whether the Belfast Giants would even exist in a pre-Good Friday Agreement. Northern Ireland, the most tangible effect, I suppose, at the top of the pyramid would be Ravenhill and the redevelopment of Ravenhill, the uh, just shy of 15 million pounds that was used to really um, bring, I suppose, the facilities into the 21st century and uh, leave Ulster rugby with what are really world-class facilities in terms of rugby. Uh, The game as a whole, um, looking beyond the professional sphere. You probably don't have that same uh, shift, I suppose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think back
2: to the late 90s,
1: obviously, the Good Friday Agreement was signed in, in 98, and w- within a year, Ulster had won the European Cup, and that's their most memorable uh, memorable moment in Ulster Rugby history. Jacob Thomas has blown his whistle, and Ulster
3: have won the European Cup.
1: Um, Again, there was no direct correlation between those two events, but it did. There was a sense that maybe that was part
2: of a new Northern Ireland or a more confident Northern Ireland. There was certainly through that run, you had more cross-community support for Ulster than you'd ever had before. I, uh, whenever I wrote a book about Ulster's European Cup win, that was something that came through from a number of the players. The fact that there was a sense that they were being talked about in places that they were never. Talked about previously, they were interacting with people who had more awareness of what they were doing. And um, I think you also have to say that they were a professional team really for the first time that year. So that was part of it. And as we see with anything in Northern Ireland, success attracts people, not necessarily the fact that the Good Friday Agreement had been signed. You know, it was still a tumultuous time politically for Northern Ireland when. Ulster won the European Cup during that season. You had the Oma bombing. It wasn't like the Good Friday Agreement was signed and everything was fine and dandy um, in those terms. So there's probably a danger of, I suppose, over-egging the pudding when it comes to 99 and the Good Friday Agreement. But I think what you say is 100% right. The rugby team added to probably a groundswell of positivity and a groundswell of that, as you say, newfound confidence that times genuinely were changing. I think maybe closer to home...
1: We look at, at football and we can say that football is a it's a cross-community sport. It's played more, there's more nationalists play football in Northern Ireland than there are people from a unionist background. Um, GAA is what it is. We know it's a vastly you know pre- predominantly national sport. What is rugby at this point? Does it remain a sport that's mainly played by unionists or is that something that, is, that has changed in the last 25
2: years? I think it probably changes at club level over the last 25 years because I think you will see clubs drawing from a wider slice of the population, if you like. The issue that rugby has and will continue to have until integrated education becomes more of the norm is the pathways to the sport through the school system. So it's still predominantly played almost only in Protestant grammar schools. I mean, is it maybe fair to say... Is
1: class a bigger divide in rugby than than religion is in, in North Ireland?
2: I think you can probably say that for rugby everywhere. And I think it's definitely changing. But again, it comes down to those entry points and it's widening the entry points and spreading the entry points because I don't know if you want, if you want to call it class, but it is essentially based on education in terms of it's what school you go to and whether the school plays it. And if you go to like we say at Protestant grammar school the chances are you're maybe not even going to have the option of playing football anymore and you don't have that in other sports I don't think I don't think there is another sport where the entry point is so narrow certainly in Northern Ireland Thank you Jonathan well, Stephen, we've heard
1: about football, we've heard about uh, GAA and we've heard about rugby. But of course, there were there were other sports that were impacted by the Good Friday Agreement. The Belfast Dawns, they may never have made their way to Belfast, but the city did get a new sports team.
3: Yeah, the Belfast Giants came to Northern Ireland in 2000. Now, this was remarkable, really, because um, they were an ice hockey team and Northern Ireland was a place with no history attached to it relating to that sport and at the time whenever the Belfast Giants came into what was the Odyssey Arena now the SSE Arena and people said they wouldn't last 23 years later they're still going strong and I would suggest that the Belfast Giants have never been bigger they are winning trophies hand over fist They are playing to sell out crowds week on week, night on night. And for me, Keith, the Belfast Giants haven't just been a huge sporting success for Northern Ireland on the back of the Good Friday Agreement. They've been a huge success for Northern Ireland, full stop. And I hope that they can continue for another 23 years and go on because I was at a Belfast Giants game recently And it's a joy to behold, and I would encourage anyone to go to the SSE Arena and see them play next season or whenever they can, because um, the Belfast Giants are absolutely brilliant.
1: But it's not just the Belfast Giants. Since the, uh, the peace process, we've seen any number of sporting events come to Northern Ireland that would not have been possible during the Troubles?
3: Yeah, when the troubles were going on, sports teams and sports individuals refused to come to Northern Ireland for fear of their safety. What the Good Friday Agreement did, and we should really be pleased and proud about this, is show that in a sporting context at least, Northern Ireland was open for business. If you think about the world-class events that have been here Since 1998, it's absolutely fantastic. You know, there was the Irish Open Golf, which proved to be a big success and a forerunner for the Open Championship being held in Portrush. And it was so successful a few years ago that they're bringing it back to Portrush, which is going to be brilliant. The Giro d'Italia, one of the biggest cycling events on the planet, has been here. The World Police and Fire Games. We've even had the UEFA Super Cup Final at Windsor Park and um, hopefully we're going to be looking at the Euro 2028 finals if and when Casement Park is built coming to Northern Ireland. So all that has been a huge plus point in relation to the Good Friday Agreement. Um, It hasn't always been playing sailing where sport has been concerned, but um, when you think about the number of glorious and great events that we have been able to attract I think that's something that um, we can look at and think, yeah, we did that right.
1: Stephen, thank you very much. Today's Bell Tell was produced by myself, Keith Bailey, with sound design by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard are courtesy of BBC Sport, ITV Sport, Sky Sports, and RTE Sport.